Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. The intercollegiate sport model faces changes unparalleled to any time in its history. Technological advances and widening college sport revenues have led some to question the efficacy of the NCAA's current governance structure and policies. The Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is an organization leading the conversation on the necessary reforms to strengthen the educational mission of college sports. Today's guest is the Knight Commission's CEO, Amy Perko, a former Division I women's basketball player at Wake Forest, Amy tells us how Title IX impacted her life and how she got involved with basketball. A Phi Beta Kappa member who graduated summa cum laude, Amy has great advice for college athletes on how to balance athletics with academic success. We discuss effective time management strategies and also explore how to find the confidence to pursue lofty goals. Beginning her career at NCAA headquarters and also working previously as an associate athletics director and senior woman administrator at the University of Kansas, Amy gives advice on how to break into the sport business. She also shares tips for college athletes on how to maximize career opportunities while playing college sports. Amy gives us an expansive look into her work with the Knight Commission and outlines areas of main priority for the organization, particularly related to gender equity and revenue sharing. This is a critical conversation for anyone curious about the future of college sports. To that end, Amy shares with us what she thinks the NCAA will look like in a decade, which is something you don't want to miss hearing. Amy is a trusted leader in college sports. I am so thankful she joined us for this insightful conversation. So now, join me in welcoming Amy Perko to the Ruling Sports Podcast. Amy, welcome to the Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your journey through sports and your current leadership in the intercollegiate sports space. What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life? Well, there's really two quotes that that come to mind and, and have really been a thread throughout my life. One is, uh, small things done consistently over time yields big results. And, and then the second quote that's particularly relevant in my work with the Knight Commission, and you know, one that, that always resonated as well, even before the work with the Knight Commission, is a, a great Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Excellent, excellent quotes. How many daughters do you have? Uh, we have two daughters. 
And where did that first quote come into your life at the idea of doing small things consistently over time? You know, I think it was uh, more around like college when I really started focusing on that. But then as I, you know, as an adult uh, working with young people, coaching myself, just it was something that I would always emphasize just as uh, something that young people can take away with them. You know, you, you do these ball handling drills consistently throughout the season, you're going to go from not being able to do a figure eight to doing this many figure eights in 30 seconds. You, you can transfer that, then using that example is transferring that to any aspect of life. I love it. And, and there's so many athletes who have incorporated that mindset into their life, their routine. We don't see all the shots being taken at the gym, the repetition. We see the big moment as fans where that person has done the work. They've done the small thing consistently over time. And when the opportunity arises, they make the game winning shot. So that's cool. I, I love that sure. quote. Tell us a little bit about your early days. Where did you grow up and what were you into? Yeah, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, Kannapolis, North Carolina. And I grew up playing all kinds of sports, just love sports and activity. Um, that's always been a big part of my life. I have always been drawn more to team sports. So I think the community aspect as well. How did you get into basketball? Basketball, interesting story. My, I had uh, two older sisters, one, my oldest sister, six years older, and she tried out for the high school basketball team. And, and that was still, you know, very early on in Title IX. And she had never been exposed to basketball before. So our parents put a goal up in the driveway and she taught me, she came home from tryouts and I followed along behind big sister and she taught me how to do a layup. And uh, from that point forward, I was hooked. Unfortunately, she got cut from the team, but she hooked younger sister on the sport. What's your sister's name? Uh, Denise. Okay. So Denise is preparing to try out for the team. She That's a pretty nice older sister because there's a pretty big age gap there. She mm -hmm. lets you come along and play with her. She unfortunately doesn't make the team. You make the team. And not only do you make the team, but you go on to play basketball at Wake Forest. If anyone knows about Amy's career, Amy truly is or was a student athlete. Not only was she a member of the women's basketball program at Wake Forest, she graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. How did you balance all of this? How did you balance being a division one athlete with high academic achievement? Well, I mean, I think it, it goes back to what we all say or things you learn from participating in sports in terms of setting goals for yourself and then making priorities of how to achieve that goal, whether it be doing well in this particular class or figuring out how to become an 80% free throw shooter. You know, I think just, again, learning how to balance and prioritize time. One of my strengths is I've always been a good listener. And I think that that helped me in, in sports to listen to advice and how to do things. But, you know, in college, going to class and listening and taking good notes is underestimated um, in terms of what it can mean to your success. And so, you know, I think all of those things uh, certainly contributed to my success. And then just, again, going back to the values of just commitment and, and discipline with what you have to do to accomplish uh, your goals. Being present in the moment is so critical. I'm a professor and I kind of laughed when you said there's actually something to going to class and listening and taking notes. 
this day and age, students have so much distraction surrounding their life. That might seem like simple advice, but it's actually really good advice. How do you get things done? How do you get a lot of things done with each thing that you're doing? You just focus in on that. And when it's time to go to practice, you focus on practice in class, you focus on class and somehow it all happens. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I, I did play in a different, if in in a different era, but I think it just goes back to those principles of what you just said, being present in the moment with what you're there for being focused on it. When you're, when you're there at practice, you're focused on how am I going to get better? How am I going to make this next 90 minutes? How am I going to get better in this next 90 minutes? And just Mm. totally focus on that. And then when you're in the classroom, I am present. I am here. How am I going to make this next 60 to 90 minutes? What am I going to learn and take away from this? So focusing on the small things, the small things all add up. You referenced Mm. Title IX. You referenced playing in a different era. When were you at Wake Forest? Um, I was at Wake Forest 1983 through 87. And, And in terms of putting it in the context, uh, of a different era. Um, I still like to my, think that I'm young, but you know, when you think about the fact the NCAA did not start hosting women's championships until 1981. So it was really two hmm. years prior to when I came to Wake Forest that Kim Mulkey was playing in the first NCAA uh, women's basketball championship. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And so we're going to get a little bit later into the current state of college sports and in particular women's sports, but you, you've seen the whole arc of this story where this year in 2023, we not only have the most watched women's basketball game, but the most watched college basketball game in history. So impressive feat and also cool that Kim was there on both bookends. Now, this is a big question. We, we've talked about discipline. We've talked about attention to detail. What is the greatest lesson basketball has taught you? You know, it's this is a great question, and, and it's hard for me to break it down to just one thing because I go back to what I said at the start, the small things done consistently over time will yield big results. I mean, in that it, it did teach me that, you know, just again, working on uh, ball handling drills as a young kid. And, and then I became really, really good at it because I did it. I think secondly, just the importance of mentors and how different people come into your your life, your path at an important time in your development. And and that takeaway from me, at least with the mentors I had in basketball, the teammates I had, it just it emphasizes the important role that all of us can play as, as mentors and, and in our roles in helping others to achieve their goals. And then just to, the overarching is, you know, as a young, as a young girl playing basketball on my out outdoor hoop. And I had a dream of playing college basketball. So setting a goal and then working towards that and, you know, being able to, to say that is my goal and, and not being afraid to go for it. And then you put in the work and, and then it shows you what, what you can achieve when you do that. That's beautiful. Now there's so many avenues we can go down from those points but let's talk about not being afraid to say that something's your goal. I have the opportunity to mentor a lot of women, both as a professor and then in my professional life. And one thing that strikes me is sometimes women are afraid to say what they really want. They'll say, well, I'm going to start a business. And if it doesn't work out, I can go do this. Instead of saying, I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going to start the next 
billion dollar generating enterprise. And now that doesn't need to be everyone's goal, but I'm just using that as an example. Where do you gain the confidence to set out after some big idea or some big hope for your future? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, it is really important to, and, and some people may not be ready to say to others, this is my goal to, but to a acknowledge it for yourself to write it down and and to then work towards it because you know it, it, all of us have you know a fear of failure but you know another great quote that that always stuck with me is you know it's not about how many times you fall but about getting up every time you fall even as you work towards whatever goal that is you're going to have a setback and you're going to have moments of doubt but those moments uh, just don't let those define you just know okay i learned something off of out of that and i'm going to take another step forward and keep going. So about keeping going and about writing down goals, there's a lot of people who are going to tell you, share your goal with someone to create accountability. I personally disagree with that. There's an entrepreneur I really look up to. Her name's Sarah Blakely. She's the first female self-made billionaire. She's the founder of a company called Spanx. And she didn't tell anybody what she was doing. Sarah basically dropped off of her social circle for a handful of years. Nobody knew what she was up to. But she said, if I told people what I was doing, this idea was so fragile that if anyone criticized it or questioned it, there's a possibility I could have given up. So you need to know yourself. You need to know how you face critique and feedback. If you're someone who faced with critique and feedback, you might give up on your goal. Don't tell people, write it down, keep it in a journal and let people see the fruits of your labor. So you talked also about mentors. Who were some of your mentors in the world of basketball? In terms of my mentors, I had, you know, some some really great coaches early on, even, even from, you know, when I was first learning, you know, fifth grade, my coach for a YMCA team. I was in the fifth grade, you know, mid 70s. And so looking back on it, I didn't realize it then, but our small town, we had a league for girls in the YMCA before any other community did at that for that age group, fifth and sixth grade, because of a, a woman in the community and because of the leader, the male leader of the YMCA hired a female to start programs for girls in the community. You know, when I was going through it, I wouldn't have identified her as a, an important person in my life. But looking back on it, she really was in terms of what she did for the community providing those opportunities. And I didn't know the backstory until, until, you know, I was much older in terms of why we had those opportunities and other communities didn't. And then of course, you know, going into, again, high school had, had some great coaches, Jim Tedder, Donna Morris, uh, on to Wake Forest, Wanda Briley, Lori Bailey. I, I love the richness of depth of those mentors, the titles and types of people you listed, but also the reflection back and I think that's a good practice. You know, all of us can go back in our life and really replay the path that got you to where you are today. Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the Ruling Sports Newsletter. The Ruling Sports Newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, business insights, and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. 
So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. You've had an incredible career. You've spent over two decades working literally at every level of intercollegiate sports, beginning at NCAA headquarters, then to the University of Kansas, and today as CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Now, we know you were a college basketball player, so we might know the answer here, but what attracted you to a career in intercollegiate athletics? Yeah, I think what I've what I've talked about earlier that I love sport and I loved what sport meant to me and my personal development and and just the fact of what sports does for communities, bringing communities together. And I love that and wanted to, you know, I had a great experience. And so I wanted to get involved with sports you know, at the national level or whatever level to help enable those experiences, to grow them and to improve them where improvement was needed. A lot of former college athletes do want to do the same. And that's kind of our listener demographic here on the show. What advice do you have for others desiring to enter the field? For those wanting to enter the field, I would just, you know, suggest exposing yourself to just so many different aspects of, of sports and, and opportunities in sports. As you know, uh, being an expert in sports law, there's that aspect, there's coaching, there, there's just so many different opportunities in sports. So also thinking about, you know, no job is really too small to do or to learn something from if you have the opportunity to volunteer uh, in some way. And again, just the the value of talking with to different people and, and understanding what jobs they do is important. And, uh, you know, now with, with what you're doing here, the podcast, there's so many different podcasts out there as well that in books that expose you to different aspects of sports. So just taking advantage of all of those opportunities in a meaningful way. Absolutely. Ask questions. Now, listen, if you're a college athlete listening, you know better than I do how busy you are. And perhaps you can't do the 16 week internship that some of your classmates who aren't college athletes can do. But what you have access to, if you're an athlete at in particular division one athletics department, what you have access to is a wide range of talented professionals who are really experts in the sport industry. And so what I always encourage athletes to do, which is what Amy's also saying is get to know the people in your athletics department, ask them about their backgrounds, ask them how they came into this role. What were they doing before? Who's in their network? What did they study? Those people can be your greatest career advocates. And there's so many former NCAA athletes who go on to really impressive careers in college sports and then beyond. And we're talking to one today with Amy. So um, hopefully some of you will take us up on that opportunity. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your current role at the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For those unfamiliar with the organization, can you tell us about it, please? Sure. The Knight Commission is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. In a nutshell, we're a think tank for college sports policy. We're an independent think tank group. And our purpose really is to lead transformational change that prioritizes the education, health, safety, and success of college athletes. So throughout our history, there have been a number of policy changes that we've uh, pushed for that the NCA has adopted. And those are policies that we believe, you know, rightly prioritize those aspects of college athlete education and health and safety. What are your main focuses today? 
Yeah, let me let me give you an example. I'll, I'll shift to what our focus is today, but I think it would be helpful if I gave you an example of something we did in the past, just to kind of put uh, the type of work we do into context. So we look at, at college sports from a principal viewpoint, and one of our principles, principles has been that the incentives in college sports should align with the educational values. And, and that's where there should be a difference between the incentives in college sports and the incentives you may see at the professional level. One easy example is now in NCAA Division I and postseason, teams have to be on track to graduate half their athletes to be eligible for postseason competition. And that is due to a policy that the Knight Commission began pushing for all the way back in 2001. Uh, when there were no types of academic thresholds or academic metrics that really held that type of accountability. So there, there were years that, you know, the four teams participating in, let's say, the final four, you know, three of them had graduation rates under 25%. And so that policy initiative led to what those inside the business know now is the academic progress rate, the graduation success rate kind of metrics that you could put that kind of policy into, into, uh, into effect. And then the NCA distribution now does have an academic unit where now schools are rewarded for meeting a specific threshold of academic success of their athletes. And, and prior to 2016, that type of reward was not in place. And again, that was one of our initiatives to, again, align these multi-million dollar incentives uh, with the educational values. So moving forward, fast forward to now, we're still pushing that, aligning incentives with the values and with the principles. And kind of another area in the, fin in the financial field is really pushing for a different financial framework, uh, one that will ensure that the revenues being generated are being used primarily towards the core mission. Let me give you two quick examples. The NCA sent out checks to conferences and schools totaling $170 million. And that money was to reward schools solely for the success of their men's basketball teams in the tournament. In contrast, there was zero that went out to schools and conferences based on the success of any women's team. That's been the case for a long time. Kaplan Hecker, that did a gender equity report two years ago for the NCAA, was commissioned by the NCAA. The Kaplan report concluded that the NCAA needed to change that aspect of their distribution. That's been an area we've talked about as well from a principal standpoint that, again, the NCAA's constitutional principle is that it will operate in a gender equitable manner. So if it's going to have athletic performance incentives, they, ha they have to reward men's and women's sports. So that's a big issue that the NCAA has been more than now 600 days since the Kaplan report said they should change it. And to, to the NCAA's credit, they, they acted quickly on a number of inequities with the tournament experience. They've brought it up to par so that the women's tournament is on par in terms of the athlete experience, which has been great, but that's another area that still needs to be addressed. So we've been pushing that one. And then moving forward, uh, you know, it's no secret the college football playoff is expanding. And that's going to mean another literally billion dollars in new revenues coming into the system. That is the multi-billion dollar question for leaders moving forward. 
is how will those new revenues be spent and will they be spent on the core educational mission and athlete benefits or some kind of new model for college sports? Or will we see what we've seen in the past, a disproportionate flow of money toward coaching salaries, expansion of coaching staffs and facilities and everything else staying the same? And and clearly we want to see things changing, not staying the same. Amy, what does a day in your life look like? You, You have these initiatives that your organization is working to promote. You sit in a very interesting seat as someone who has been a college athlete, worked at the NCAA, was a senior women administrator at one of the most recognized programs. What what are you doing every day to further these initiatives? What does it look like? In terms of our daily work, you know, again, we're think tank. Uh, we, we, ha- we do have public meetings uh, two to three times a year. So we look at what are the issues, you know, we need to be spotlighting or trying to move the needle on for this public meeting coming up. Do we need to commission research? Do we need to bring in outside experts? And so then it's working with a team of consultants that help create that strategic plan for our commission to give us guidance and and taking that direction from our commission members. The way we're set up, we have 21 commission members and they're volunteer members. And our commission has really been effective because of those people. And as an example, our our co-chairs are Arnie Duncan and Lynn Elmore. Arnie Duncan was the Secretary of Education, played basketball at Harvard. Uh, Lynn Elmore, I think uh, most most folks know that name. He was a commentator, an All-American at at Maryland, also uh, has a law degree. So those are our co-chairs. And then our members are just thought leaders and, and about I think it's around 75% of our members uh, participated as college athletes. Uh, Jacques McClendon played football at Tennessee. He's now director of football affairs at the LA Rams. You know, you can go down the list, but you know, when again, when you get all of those thoughtful people into the room and we all have the shared, same shared goal around college sports, it, it's bringing those folks together and saying, how do we address this priority? How do we move this forward? To your point, there's a lot of decisions that are being made and are going to continue being made because college sports is truly in a watershed moment. Does your organization like pick up the phone and call athletics directors or the executive director of the NCAA? Sure. We've had over the years, open lines of communication. We've as easy as making a phone call, um, having Zoom meetings, but also meeting with decision makers in person. Our last big report, and available. We, we did a series of reports uh, over 2020 and 2021. They're all on our website, nightcommission.org. And one of the things we did for this report, as well as reports in the past, is we did major surveys of presidents, ADs, senior women administrator, faculty reps, and athletes, doing things like surveys to, to opinion surveys on policy issues of those leaders, presenting to conferences, conference meetings, you know, having that 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 interaction with with the decision makers is something we 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 do on a regular basis. That that's all really fascinating and thank you for walking us into how this process unfolds. One thing that I've noticed from my seat is there's a lot more voices in this space now than maybe there was 10 years ago. There's 
different commissions. We see lobbying groups heading to Washington, D.C., sharing their message. How do you make sure your message is cutting through in a space where maybe there's increasing sounds and perhaps dilution of the impact of the message? Yeah, in terms of measuring our effectiveness and, and you know, making sure our message gets through, and I think it comes back to a couple things. One, the quality of our commission members. These are all thoughtful people. Who, who approach the issues with wanting to understand the research, wanting to understand what experts think, and the power of our legacy that we have. I don't think you will find an athletic director or a university president. Well, I think you would find that all of them believe what was put in place, an academic threshold for postseason eligibility, was one of the influencing factors for what we have now is the highest graduation rates ever in Division One, And so that benefited athletes. That was something, quite frankly, when we recommended it, I was not part of the commission in 2001 when it was first recommended, but when it was recommended, the Knight Commission's idea was, well, that's pie in the sky, that'll never happen. But the commission stayed with it consistently and was persistent and continued to do research and didn't give up on it. It, it was one of the, an example of it wasn't a bad idea ever. It was just an idea whose time had not yet come and there needed to be a development of metrics and other things to make it possible. So I think, you know, again, number one, how you approach the issues, saying you're going to be able to do research, uh, doing it thoughtfully having a legacy of some impact and and success and and trying to work collaboratively. Uh, now that said, the biggest change from where we are now to when I first started with the, with the commission is that university presidents at that time, a decade ago, wanted to keep Congress out of college sports and wanted to show everyone presidents could provide the leadership and could provide reforms to do the things that needed to be done. I think now, you know, the NCAA and presidents have said, we need Congress to step into college sports. So it is a real shift. But I think in terms of uh, our groups, uh, how you break through and, and make sure that, you know, s someone's listening to, to your ideas is, you know, making sure they're grounded in research and, and, and well thought out. And uh, our messaging is, is, is not done in a way that trying to be sensational, but just to present, present the facts and to stick with it. You mentioned pie in the sky that in 2001, when what would become <clears throat> the academic progress rate was proposed, people said, Hey, that this is a pretty pie in the sky idea. A few minutes ago, you talked about basketball distributions where there's a pretty hefty sum of money distributed as a result of the Division One men's basketball tournament, but zero dollars distributed for the women's. Are we going to get that done or is that a pie in the sky idea? It will happen. And I think it will happen sooner rather than later. And And one of the issues that's been conflated, we believe, is that there are some even advocates for starting a women's basketball unit who say, well, we have to have a, a, a an unbundled and sole women's basketball contract from which that money can be drawn first before we can start having an athletic performance unit for women. 
And in it's the Knight Commission's position, it's also Kaplan Hecker's position, if you read their report. And it's really only is it really only three pages of a hundred page report that they focus on revenue distribution. So don't get overwhelmed if you want to learn more about their position. Basically, they say the NCAA is a not-for-profit not educational association, and the NCAA has a distribution. It doesn't matter where the NCAA's money comes from. So if the NCAA decides, and its constitutional principle is that it's going to operate in a gender-equitable manner, and it decides it's going to reward athletic performance, then out of its big pot of money, it can't just reward men's basketball. And, and the NCA may decide that it wants to reward, you know, uh, more more men's sports and more women's sports, and that's fine uh, if they if they want to do that. But they they've got to change what they're currently doing. I think you know one other thing that we've talked about. We haven't touched on this in our conversation, but one of the things that we've the Knight Commission's done a lot of work on, and that we've really shed a lot of light on. That's one of the most misunderstood facts in college sports is that this college football playoff money is outside of the NCAA. The NCAA doesn't receive any money whatsoever from FBS football. So so that's um, you know one of those basic facts that frankly we thought people understood it at a different level until we realized wow some university presidents don't even realize this in terms of the disconnect between the NCAA is handling with March Madness revenues multi-million dollar lawsuits for FBS football, but the CFP money is outside the system and not contributing to that at all. So that's been a major point and was a major part of our 2020 report about major changes that need to occur. And, and that runs, you know, to 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 a subject of a, a much what would be a much longer podcast, but I did want to mention that because when you when you said pie in the sky, one of our one of our major recommendations has been, you know, frankly, FBS football should have a different governing entity from the NCAA, and that entity should be funded by the CFP because, frankly, five years from now, the CFP revenues will be $2 billion, the NCAA will still be around a billion dollars. So you're looking at this independent pot of money that has no accountability and responsibility to the sport from a national, uh, uh, from a liability standpoint and national operations. So it just doesn't make sense. But when we put that out in 2020, the response was, well, that's pie in the sky. That'll never happen. But <laughs> As things have progressed, UNC head football coach Mac Brown said, let's face it, we're now the mini NFL. Football needs its own entity, its own commissioner to run the sport. <laughs> so we'll see. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. Everyone needs to rewind and listen to about the last five minutes several times until what Amy said really sinks in because there, there is a lot that was said there. If you don't understand the governance structure of Division One, in particular, the what I call handoff, some people might disagree with that, um, the, the handoff of the playoff 
the championship for division one FBS, that's definitely something for you to look into to understand that structure. But those are all points very well taken with me. I love what you reference about the allocation for men's basketball versus women's basketball. And what struck me as you were talking, these are my words, not Amy's. It's a choice. It's a choice. This is a nonprofit organization. It doesn't report to shareholders. It's not trying to generate a profit. This organization exists to further a charitable mission. And within its bylaws, within its governing documents, one of the stated missions is this idea of gender equity. This is a choice. And so I I thank you for sharing that piece here with us today. Amy, if you have the answer to this question, God bless you. What does college sports look like in a decade? Well, I I don't know what it's going to look like in a decade. I could tell you what we hope it will look like, at least from a structural standpoint. And I'll go back to what I just said. I think you're going to see FBS football or some form of FBS football, whether it's Power Five, be governed by a separate entity than the NCAA. It'll be funded by the college football playoff, and that will look very different. You know, you could have arrangements with some athletes that look more like university hospital arrangements with medical school residents. It could be a very different, you know, student arrangement uh, structure than than what we see right now. You know, again, what we hope then is that that separate entity would allow the NCAA to restructure itself around, frankly, the sports it really does control and is unified by, and that then it would, you know, it would be able to correct, and it can do this tomorrow, but it needs to correct the inequities that we're talking about and decide what it wants its association to be. Because, you know, going back to what you said, it really is an associate, it's an educational association that's focus is to develop the human potential of young women and young men through sports. Hmm. And, and when that is the mission, <laughs> then every decision that is made in terms of who sits on the board of directors, how do we distribute our revenue has to come back to that just simple mission. And it's a beautiful mission. If, if that mission is executed, That is one of the most beautiful missions any organization can have. Amy, you have shared so much time with us and in talking, I'm like, okay, we need about three hours to unpack all of this. We thank you so much for what you've shared thus far. How can people keep up with you and the commission? On Twitter, Night Athletics. We're also on LinkedIn, Night Commission. And our website has a ton of information, nightcommission.org. We also have lots of slide decks that really simplify a lot of the things that we've talked about. And then I'm on Twitter, um, Amy Perko. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. We really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show and join us next time.